Thanks very much, Jamie and Band. Welcome, everyone, again. Thank you for coming out this evening. You'll be pleased to know we have a more upbeat psalm today, both on Sundays and Wednesdays recently. We've had some psalms that talk about the problem the psalmist has had, some caused by sin, some caused by a difficulty in discerning God's presence. This evening, we're looking at someone who's come out of that situation and is able to praise God for his deliverance from it. So let's read it together, and then we'll look at what God's got to say to us through it. So Psalm 30. Heading in my Bible says, A psalm, a song for the dedication of the temple of David. David writes, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the grave. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts but only a moment, but his favour lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favoured me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. I'm sure God will bless his word as we consider it together. One of the things I think we've learned as we've looked at quite a number of psalms over recent months is that it's always worth having a look at the heading. The heading in psalms, I think, are a bit like chapter and verse divisions in our Bible. They're not a part of the inspired scripture. Their helps have been added to give us some guidance as we seek to understand what God is saying to us. So very often the headings for the psalms give us some kind of indication of the circumstances in which they were written, and that then can help us to relate them to our lives. I think the heading for this psalm is quite interesting. It starts off a psalm, a song, fair enough, uh, good repetition there. But it then says, for the dedication of the temple of David. That raises two difficulties, I think, that we need to think about. The first thing is, if you know anything about the life of David, one thing you'll know is he didn't build the temple. And he actually wasn't there when the temple was dedicated. The temple was built under God's instructions by David's son, Solomon. Now, David did everything but build the temple. All Solomon had to do was to call the builders in and to use the materials that David had got together in the place which David had prepared and to get the temple put up. But David didn't build the temple and he wasn't there at its dedication. So why do we have a psalm of David that is for dedication of the temple? Well, a number of possible explanations for that. The word that is translated as temple actually literally means house in the original Hebrew. So it's possible that it was the dedication of David's house, this palace that's being talked about, though most scholars think not that it actually was the temple. 
Perhaps David, knowing that the temple was going to be built and would be finished a few years after his death, he wrote a song, he wrote a psalm that would be appropriate for singing at the dedication of the temple, quite possible. Or the other possibility is that actually the the words for the dedication of the temple were added later. Uh, And the dedication of the temple being talked about is not necessarily the temple built by Solomon. It might be the restoration of the temple under Ezra. Or or perhaps even more likely, it's the rededication of the temple by the Maccabees um, after Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated it uh, and the Jews uh, cast him out uh, and then they rededicated the temple to God. This is not in in our Old Testament, it's in the Apocrypha, but it is Jewish history. And what would give support to that is that the word dedication here is the word Hanukkah. And Hanukkah, of course, is the festival uh, that, that celebrates, the Jewish festival celebrates the, the Maccabees and what they did. So a little interesting puzzle there, probably no great practical relevance to us. The second thing, though, I think is of more relevance and it's worth a bit of thought. And that is, what does this psalm have to do with the dedication of a temple? Why would someone think that this psalm that we've read together is one that's particularly appropriate when the temple is being dedicated? Now, if we look back to when the temple actually was dedicated under Solomon, you have Solomon's great prayer. And Solomon's great prayer has this wonderful vision of God. It's, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholehearted in your way, and so on. Solomon's dedication of the temple has a very high vision of God and of his greatness and of his dealings with his people, Israel. But this psalm is just one man's testimony. It's not about God's dealings with Israel and the great sweep of history. It's one person who's gone through a time of difficulty and God has brought them out and he is asking others to celebrate with him. So why is it a psalm that's of particular relevance to the dedication of the temple? Again, I think two reasons. One is that the theme of this psalm is God's mercy. That the psalmist had got into this situation where he was probably very ill, probably on the point of death, and God in his mercy and his grace rescues him from that. And of course, the temple is the place of God's mercy. It's where the people were able to come to meet with God and where sacrifices were made for sins. Indeed, if we'd read on in Solomon's prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 6, we'd have seen that most of that prayer is about the Israelites being disobedient to God. God then disciplines them for it, whether it's through foreign armies coming in or through famines or whatever. And Solomon is praying, when they turn back to you, God, listen to them and in your mercy show forgiveness. So what we read about in Second Chronicles 6, specifically in relation to the temple as it has been built on a national level, I think we see on the individual level in Psalm 30. Here is a psalm that reminds us of the mercy of God as the temple reminds us of the mercy of God. And of course, for us as believers in the Lord Jesus, as the cross of Christ above all else reminds us of God's mercy to us. Second reason why I think this is a a psalm that is relevant uh, to the dedication of the temple is that it is an individual who is calling others together to rejoice with them. 
And when we come together to worship and to praise God, part of what we do is that we rejoice in God's goodness to us individually. And all of us can celebrate what God is doing in other people's lives. I think it's been really good in recent weeks and months that we've had more people at the all-age service talking a little bit about what God is doing in their lives and what God means to them day to day. And that is a, a way in which all of us can begin to understand more of God's goodness and can celebrate together. And of course, again, as we think of the temple, we maybe think largely of the Day of Atonement and the sacrifice for the sins of the people but most of the sacrifices that are made in the temple were sacrifices by individuals. Sacrifices recognizing their sin, or particularly in this context, sacrifices recognizing God's goodness to them, thank offerings for what God had done for them. And so this psalm calls us, if we as Christians have experienced the goodness of God in our lives, to share it with others, to give thanks to God for it, and together to praise him for his goodness to us as individuals, as well as to us as a church. So it is a psalm that's relevant to the dedication of the temple and very relevant to us too, as we think of our need for God's mercy, and as we think too of how we together should praise God for all the things that he's doing in our lives as individuals. Let's try and get a little bit of understanding of the structure of the psalm. The psalm uh, begins and ends um, with words of praise from David. Verse 1, I will exalt you, O Lord. And verse 12, right at the end, Lord my God, I will praise you forever. And then in verse 4, um, David takes his personal praise and he encourages everyone else to join in with them. Sing the praises of the Lord. And these three phrases there, they are the kind of dividers of the psalm. And in between them, there are two accounts by David of what God has done for him. So first of all, David gives what is in many ways the physical description of what's happened. He was ill, he was on the point of death, and God raised him up. That's verses 2 and 3 particularly. And then the second half of the psalm, in the longest bit of the psalm, David, if you like, gives the, the spiritual reason for what's happened. And he talks about the security he felt. He talks about how he was dismayed when his world started crumbling around him and he couldn't see God's face. God had hidden this place from him. He talks about the prayer that he prayed, that prayer for God's mercy and God's grace to him. And then at the end, he talks about how God has turned his life round and has clothed him with joy. So essentially a psalm with two is not two halves because the second is a lot longer than the first, but it's two different ways of looking at the same thing. One is the description of physically what God has done for the psalmist, and the second then is the spiritual side of things, how he interprets what's happened, and they're all encapsulated within the praise of the psalmist. So let's begin and have a look through um, the psalm. I've got loads of alliteration this evening, hopefully it might make it a little bit easier to remember. Um, and the first few verses, we're looking at what I've called my proclamation, David's proclamation, under the theme of death defeated. So here we have David uh, doing the first pass at what God has done for him, 
and recognizing that he's gone through a near-death experience and he's come out of it through God's grace. So verse 1, he says, you lifted me out of the depths. You did not let my enemies gloat over me. Very interesting to read the Psalms. All the Psalmists seem to have lots of enemies. Uh, I assume these are enemies are people who are uh, the other nations or those who didn't have any time for God. But very often you read about the enemies uh, uh, who just seem to be waiting to pounce on anything bad that happens to the Psalmist uh, and to put him down even further. So but God doesn't let the enemies gloat over him because as he was ill, as he called to God for help, God healed him. And he says, you brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. I think the natural interpretation of this is that the psalmist had been very, very ill, that he had perhaps been on the point of death, and God had healed him. He had recovered, and looking back on things, he was able to praise God. He knew that God was the one who was stronger than death who was able to rescue him and to heal him and to help him and to comfort him, as the title of our our, our series this evening uh, says, to comfort him in his time of trouble. Now, we're not going to spend any longer on this because I think the real spiritual meat is in later parts of the Psalms. Let's move on to the next two verses. I've called this my principle, grace guaranteed. And I think that's right. I think this is the kind of theological basis for what the writer says in the psalm. But I looked at it and thought, that looks very sterile. The psalm is getting really excited here. And he's saying to me, well, rejoice with me and really think about God's goodness. He disciplines us for a short time and then he restores us. So I thought we'd write things just a little bit and perhaps give a bit more of a flavour um, for what the psalmist is thinking here. You may have come across a book called Rob Lacey. It is called uh, The Word on the Street. It used to be called The Street Bible. And it's a very loose paraphrase of, of important parts of the scripture. And when Rob Lacey is writing about the psalms, he says, these are songs, they were meant to be sung. Let's imagine what kind of style they might be sung in if we were singing them in our society today. And he says, Psalm 30 would be a rock anthem. It'll be full of guitar riffs and loud noises and people dancing about and really getting excited about what's happening. And verses 4 to 5, the verses we're looking at here, he says, that's the chorus. That's the highlight. That's when you really get uh, on top of things. So let's, let me read what he, uh, tra- not translated, interprets it as um, in this book. He says, so let it rip. Sing it strong. Let his crew take the roof off with the celebration song. His fury didn't last so long. His favor lasts a lifetime. We cry through the night, but the morning sun begins its climb, and it's celebration time. That's what the psalmist is saying to those who are listening or those who are reading. It's celebration time. It's the time to celebrate God's goodness and God's grace to us. And as we read these verses, we really should be getting quite excited about what God is doing for us. So he says, sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people, praise his holy name. And then this wonderful verse, verse 5, his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing or joy, the older versions say, joy comes in the morning. Why is that? It is because God's grace is guaranteed if we turn 
to him. Now we're going to be looking in a few minutes at Samus' situation, but the, it looks like the Samus had been guilty of some sin in his life. Because of his sin, God had disciplined him. He turned to God. God restored him uh, to health as well as spiritually. And he's able to rejoice because he knows that God is a God of grace. God doesn't want us as Christians to live lives that are miserable, that, that we're always down and that there are all sorts of problems that keep occupying our attention. Sometimes he will discipline us. Sometimes he will, in the words of the psalm, be angry with us. If we turn away from him, particularly in the ways we're going to talk about in a minute, if we turn away from God, if we lose our trust in him, in practice, if not in words, then he may bring things upon us to wake us up, to help us to realize that we depend on him and that we need him. But he disciplines us only to bring him back to himself, to himself. And he does it in a way that is short term and that allows us, once we are restored to him, to enjoy again the joy of our salvation. Grace is guaranteed if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus. If we come to him and confess whatever is happening in our lives, whatever we have done, whatever our attitudes have been that are wrong, when we come truly confessing our sin and relying on the death of the Lord Jesus as the one who took these sins on himself, then we can experience God's grace in our lives. And when we're going through the night, when we're weeping, when things are really, really hard, it can be difficult to see God at work. It can be difficult to understand how God is working things for our good. But when we come to the morning, when things get brighter, when we begin to understand more of God's way for us, we can look back and we can say, what God allowed to happen to me was for my good, for my benefit, and I can rejoice in his grace to me. His anger lasts only a moment. But his favour, his grace, lasts a lifetime. Let's celebrate and rejoice in the, the grace of our God and all that he does for us, despite our sin and despite our failure. Let's move on and look a little bit more at the situation of the psalmist. Now, as I said, from verse 6 on, he's broadly looking at his spiritual condition as well as, as a little bit of the physical But verse 6, I think, may be the key to understanding what's going on in the psalm. Psalmist says, when I felt secure, I said, I shall never be shaken. picture I put up there says, I shall not be moved. And the key word there, I think, is I. The psalmist has gotten to a situation where he is self-satisfied, where he is proud, where he doesn't realize his dependence on God. Oh yes, if you asked him, you would say, God is my God, I trust him, I follow him, I depend on him. But actually in his life and in his thoughts and in his attitudes, he's thinking, I can take care of myself. I've got into this situation, if it's David, maybe it's the the situation of being in the palace and being in a position of authority and thinking, this is my thing. One possibility of this psalm is that David wrote it after he tried to count all his armies uh, and when God had told him not to. 
And as he counted his armies, God brought judgment on Israel. Perhaps that's the situation he's talking about. That was uh, really David's pride in, in wanting to see how powerful he and his armies were. Maybe it was that, maybe it was something else. But it does look as if the psalmist got in a situation where he's saying, I have done this, I shall not be moved, I shall never be shaken. I am secure. That's a dreadful place for anyone who trusts in God to get into. And yet perhaps it's a place that's all too easy for us to get into. As we live lives which by and large are comfortable, where most of us have a reasonable amount of material things, and we're not thinking, where's my next meal going to come from, or that kind of thing. Now, yes, that's not everyone, most of us in that kind of situation. It's very easy for us to become dependent on ourselves. See, I've got a good job, I've worked, I've saved up, I've built up my life, and you kind of then lose your dependence on God. And sometimes God then has to come in and to discipline us and to draw us up and to say, no, without me you are nothing and you mustn't depend on yourself. And I certainly, as I, as I read this psalm, it, it, it is one thing that really strikes you as you think about it, as you examine your heart, to say, am I self-satisfied like the psalmist? I wouldn't say it. But perhaps by my actions and by my attitudes, I demonstrate it, that my feeling is I shall never be shaken. I feel secure. And the psalmist says that's not how it should be. So then in verse 7, he, he, he talks about what happens. So he's saying, I feel secure. I shall never be shaken. And in verse 7, he turns back to talking about God. Interesting, this psalm, he, he kind of alternates between giving some commentary and talking to God. I think he addresses God eight times in the psalm. He said, when you favoured me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. Not exactly sure what that means, but I think the, the kind of import of it is quite obvious, that it, it was God that had given them some security and some stability in his life, and it made his life good and relatively easy. But then he says, when you hid your face, I was dismayed. And God hid his face. In this case, it looks like when the psalmist fell really ill and thought he was about to die. And in that situation where the psalmist was full of himself and confident in himself, God comes to him and says, actually, you have no reason for confidence in yourself. Your life it's here today. It could be gone tomorrow. Uh, you have no real long-term power or authority unless it comes from God. And if your security isn't in God, then that security is insecure. You're not standing on the solid rock. You're standing on the sinking sand and you're liable to come in for a big fall. And God allows the psalmist to go through that experience God, God, the psalmist said, hides his face from him. So the psalmist is looking to God in his time of illness, in his time of difficulty, in his time of trial, and he has great difficulty finding God. Not that God's not there. God is always there, always present. And yet as the psalmist, until he is willing to admit his failure and to admit that he's got things wrong, it's as if God is hiding his face and the psalmist begins to lose all hope. 
Perhaps at times we get into that kind of situation too, when things seem to be clattering down around us and God doesn't seem to be present uh, and there are lessons in that for us. And we've looked at that uh, in some of the previous weeks uh, at this series as well. The psalmist says, my security was shattered. I had a big problem. So what does he do? He prays. Verses 8 to 10, he comes before God and you have this really desperate prayer. To you, O Lord, I call. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. And what does he say to God? He says, what is gained if I'm silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. Now we have to realize that the Old Testament writers didn't have the full view of Scripture that we do. So we would look at death, hopefully, in the light that Paul looked at it in Philippians chapter 1, to say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So for the Christian, death isn't something that is final and that stops us from praising God. In some ways, it's the gateway into even greater praise and adoration of God as we see the Lord Jesus face to face and as we fall down and as we truly worship him. For the psalmist, it was something that was to be dreaded and not to be looked forward to. Now, again, I'm slightly challenged by this because I've said as Christians, this is how it should be. I'm not sure always as Christians this is how it is. Uh, And perhaps at times we do dread death. Perhaps uh, we do everything we can to cling on to life. And sometimes God has to say to Christians, no, it is better for you that you come to be with me. That is my plan for your life. So we shouldn't dread death. Perhaps we do sometimes. But I think what we take particularly from these verses is that when we get into this kind of situation the psalmist is in, when all seems hopeless, when all seems to be going against us, and we're really worried about our future and what's going to happen, perhaps whether we're even going to face death or something uh, dreadful uh, instead of that, that is the time when we really get before God in prayer earnestly and sincerely. Now, we should be praying in that way when we're feeling secure. When we're in a situation uh, the psalmist is in, in verse 6, not that should he have, but the situation he was in, when things were going well uh, and it all seemed to be fine, that is the time when we should be building our relationship with the Lord. We should be investing time in reading the scripture and learning it in, in prayer and meditation and making sure that when the time of difficulty does come, we have a relationship with God that, that, that we can come to him in prayer and with confidence in his answer. Sadly, sometimes when things are going easily for us, we're all too for, apt to forget to pray. As a church, do we pray together and fervently and sincerely as often or as much as we should? I suspect the answer is that we don't. As an individual, do I pray to God in the way that I should when things are going well? The answer in my life, perhaps in yours too, is no, not always. But when the time of difficulty comes, when we recognize our need of God, when we come to him and we plead to him for mercy, God is there and God is able and willing to answer our prayers. And our recourse in the time of trouble is not to look to ourselves, not to look to others round about us, but to look to God and to look to his mercy 
uh, and to seek his face and his guidance and protection in it. So the psalmist dreaded his destruction, his death, but he did the right thing. He came to God in prayer. And then the last couple of verses of the psalm uh, uh, is a praise of the psalmist. I've called it Rejoicing Restored. I guess there's five is the one that most people know from this psalm and the joy in the morning bit, but also verse 11 and 12, I'm sure, look familiar to us. There's a picture that's not unique to this psalm in Scripture. It's taking someone in pictorially who is dressed up to go to a funeral, who is in mourning uh, and who is really sad about things, uh, and they have a complete change of clothing and they also have a complete change of attitude. The sackcloth, the mourning uh, garments come off, the, the joyful garments, the garments of salvation go on, uh, and the wailing that was, was there before was turned into dancing. The psalmist's life has been completely transformed. And he goes back perhaps in one sense to where he was to begin with. He's been through this time of illness and he's back again uh, with God's favour and in a good place physically. But he's actually not going back spiritually to where he was before. He's recognising that was not a good place to be and having experienced God's discipline and God's grace. So he rejoices in God's goodness and I'm sure as he goes forward, his trust is much more confidently in God. And so he rejoices in God and he encourages others to rejoice in God as well. My heart sings your praises and not is not silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. So someone who's been through the whole gamut of things that we read about in the Psalms. He started off with God and feeling secure and feeling God's blessing in his life, but perhaps not recognizing how much was dependent on God. He's experienced God's discipline for his sin. He's experienced illness. He was perhaps on the point of his enemies gloating over them, over him, though it doesn't seem to have come to that. And then he experiences God's grace and he's able really to rejoice in the Lord. And that's a good place for us to be if we're going through times of difficulty to recognize that there is joy in the morning, that God does have a plan for us if we've gone through that time to share with each other and to rejoice in all that God has done for us. When I came to church this morning, I was told, pondering in my mind, how I would finish uh, this evening. I I always find the most difficult part of a sermon is the end. Uh, Relatively straightforward, usually to to divide up the passage, to explain it. There's usually something that comes at the beginning that you can guess a hook into it, but often to really end well is difficult. And I was sitting this morning, and I looked over on my right, on your left there, and it was the words that young people did at Easter. Remember, the Easter service, Paul got the young people to fill in these three words. Presence, peace, and power. And I thought these are really relevant as we think about this psalm. It is about the presence or absence, apparent absence, of God. It is someone who has depended on God and has felt God present and suddenly feels God absent. And yet he recognizes that actually God is there. And that is the first step in our restoration if we're going through times of difficulty. To recognize that God is always present and he is always here to hear us and to answer our prayers. And then there's 
peace. John Golden Gay, in his commentary on this chapter, talks about two stages in God answering our prayers. And this psalm is largely about the second phase. He says the first phase of God answering our prayers is when we bring our requests to him and we trust him that he is going to answer. And he answers initially by giving us that peace, that confidence in him, knowing that we have a loving Heavenly Father and that he will do what's best for us. So peace, I think, is very relevant to this psalm. The psalmist has got beyond that point now, but in other many other psalms, the psalmist says, I will trust in God despite everything that's happening in my life. And that psalm, these psalmists have got to kind of stage one of God's answer. They've recognized they need God, they've committed things to him, and God has given him a peace about it. God has assured them of his love and that he will always work for their good. But then there's the second stage, and that stage is the stage that is represented by the word power over here. That it wasn't just in the psalmist's attitudes or in his understanding of God that God worked. That God actually gave him the request that he asked for. He answered his prayer in a very real, in a very physical way. And when we pray, we need to recognize the presence of God. We need to leave things with God to trust him and to know that we can have peace because we committed it to him. But we then need to look for the evidence of God's power and the answer that he gives to our prayers. Not always as we expect. Our Heavenly Father knows better than we do what it is we need. But to look for the evidence of God's power and how he has changed things in our lives. And when we see that, when we can look back and we can understand the goodness of our God and all that he has done for us, that is the point at which we need to share it with others. We need to bring our testimony before others in our fellowship or among our friends. And together we can then rejoice at the goodness of God and to recognize that with God, his anger only lasts for a short time. But his mercy, his grace, his favor lasts a lifetime. That there may be weeping, but that weeping is only in the short term if our confidence is in God. And in the morning, things lighten up. The darkest hour is just before the dawn. And as the dawn comes and the light comes in, we can see God working and we can rejoice in all that he has done for us. So let's take comfort from this psalm. May we entitled my comforter. And let's take comfort from this psalm in the knowledge of what God God does for us. And let's be willing to share with one another God's goodness in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that this psalm really is one of rejoicing, one of being able to celebrate your goodness and your grace. We thank you that you are a God above all of grace and of love. And although our sins rightly bring your wrath because sin is hateful to you, yet you are eager that your grace should overcome all our faults, that where sin abounds, that grace should abound even more, and that we should experience your forgiveness and your joy and your work in our lives. Help us to have a real dependence on you. Help us not to rely on ourselves and on our strength. Help us to depend on you 
and in good times and in bad times, to be able to come to you in earnest prayer, recognizing you as our Heavenly Father, and to bring all our requests to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we give you our thanks for being with us for our time of worship and of meditation on your word. And we commit ourselves to you for the coming days in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.